we continue our series of sermons in First and Second Thessalonians. As you might recall, uh, because of the strong opposition that Paul and his fellow missionaries had in Thessalonica, this prominent city, they were forced to leave the town right after they planted a church, maybe in a matter of just a few weeks. And so they left this young church that's trying to figure out how to live the Christian life and specifically what to think about Christ's return and how that affects their life now. Sometime later, Paul sent Timothy to check on them, and Timothy came back with a good report, but also with some concerns that Paul tried to clarify by writing these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. So today we're looking at the section that Al read for us, and it's all about relationships. And the question I'm going to ask is, how are relationships shaped by the promise of Christ's return? This is a very emotional passage. Paul talks about having been torn away, literally orphaned, from the Thessalonians, and yet having a great desire to go to them and to see them face to face. He desires that, that personal contact with them. It's not enough just to write a letter. He tells them how many times he has tried to come to them, and yet Satan has prevented him. We don't know what he's referring to exactly. Maybe through illness, maybe through persecution, maybe directly, but he feels hindered by the enemy. Paul relates his relief in learning through Timothy that the Thessalonians still remember him kindly and long to see him. Timothy's report was like an infusion of life for Paul and his team. He says, now we live that we know that you're established in the Lord. It's just a great passage that is full of emotion and affection for the people in Thessalonica. He says, I pray for you night and day. So as we read this passage, or as I read this passage, I thought, is Paul too emotional? Now, this is coming from me, right? I'm always wondering, are people too emotional? Does he not know about boundaries, is my question. Has he not read many of those books about boundaries with people you minister to? Has he not read that Cosmo article, Nine Signs You're in a Codependent Relationship, and why that could be harmful. I don't know who's not read that. Or maybe, just maybe, Paul knows something about relationships that we need to learn. Maybe this is appropriate to be so affectionate. Maybe it's appropriate to be so emotional to people that you are separated from. So this morning, I'd like us to take a closer look at this passage and consider four things. The purpose of relationships, the problem with relationships, the priority of relationships, and finally, the power for relationships. So it's, this sermon is brought to you by the letter P, if you're keeping track. Let's look at the purpose of relationships. Now look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. Again, very emotional language, but what is he saying? Saying, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's a big statement. <laughs> I mean, he's saying that what, what drives me in my pursuit of my relationship with you 
even in the face of all the persecution and all the trouble we've endured in your city, what drives me, Paul says, is the vision of presenting you before Jesus at his return. So when Paul is writing a letter, when he's asking about that church and how they're doing, what's on his mind is, at one point, when Jesus returns, I will be there, and these people that I've invested in will be my glory, they will be my joy, they will be my crown. I will be able to present them to Jesus. The purpose of relationships is transformation into the kind of people Christians will become at Christ's return. So if we're asking the question, why why are we investing in relationships with other people, specifically with Christians? The answer is that we're doing that in the hope of contributing to the transformation of that person into the kind of person they will become when Jesus returns. Listen to Timothy Keller. He writes about marriage, but we can easily apply this to all Christian relationships. He says, what then is marriage for? Is it for helping each other? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves. It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look toward is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see what God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. If you are married or if you are dating, this may be a word for you. This may be a word for me. The point of marriage is for us to present our mate as their future glory self, is to pursue that, is to pursue the vision that God has for them, remaking them into the image of Jesus. But it applies to all relationships. And Paul feels so deeply about his relationship with the Thessalonians because he sees so clearly the God-given purpose for them. He doesn't just miss his friends, although it's part of that. He recognizes his role in their transformation and ultimately in their glorification at Christ's return. Paul says, I want to come to you so I can supply what is lacking in your faith. That's chapter 3, verse 10. He prays that the Thessalonians would be presented blameless in holiness before God at the coming of Jesus. Verse 13 of chapter 3. This is his whole purpose in knowing them and in spending time with them and writing letters to them. 
You see, he knows he has a role to play in their sanctification, meaning in them becoming holy and them becoming more like Jesus and them changing and being transformed to become the kind of people that God knows they will become at Christ's return. But it's not only that Paul is looking at the Thessalonians and seeing his role in their transformation, he's also seeing their role in his transformation. They contribute to his joy. He says, is it not you, our glory, our joy, our crown of boasting? Their spiritual progress is life-giving to Paul as well. By helping them grow, he is growing. Not only do the Thessalonians need Paul, but Paul needs them. Now, this is what the Bible teaches about relationships. And it challenges the two common approaches we have in our culture. It challenges the progressive view of focusing on the self and self-fulfillment and using relationships to boost one's self-esteem. It's a common view, commonly in public education. Sorry, Carla. <laughs> commonly taught. Focus on yourself. And so if a relationship doesn't work for you, get out. It's toxic, right? But there's another view. This may hit a little bit closer to home for us. There's a traditional view that says, just focus on others. Forget yourself. Just do what others need doing. This is a more traditional view. Serve others without any recognition of the benefit and joy that can come to you through serving. So if one, the progressive view is self-centered and self-fulfillment, the traditional view is, is duty. Forget yourself. But the biblical view is both. The biblical view tells you serve others, but by serving others you will be fulfilled. So as you serve others, as you focus on others, as you pursue an other-centered life, you will actually find yourself. You will actually realize who you are. And there's a pretty good chance you will find fulfilling moments in those relationships. The Bible, as usual, suggests a third approach. You can't find that in our culture. We are too polarized. But the Bible brings it together, knowing the human nature and knowing the human brokenness as well. We are to live other-centered lives, but we are to expect them to be fulfilling and joyful as well. Now, that's the purpose of relationships, is to help the other person be transformed into the glory self, the future glory self that God has for them at the coming of Jesus. But some of you, and I am in your number, are saying, that's not my experience. If we accept this ideal as Paul describes it, why are so many of my relationships so difficult? If Tim Keller's idea of marriage is so glorious, why is my marriage so hard? If relationships are supposed to be so beneficial and fulfilling and joyful, why is there so much dysfunction in our community? Listen to N.T. Wright, who reflects on the puzzle of relationships. From the most intimate relationship, marriage, to those on the largest scale, national institutions, we find the same thing. We all know we're made to live together. 
but we all find that doing so is more difficult than we had imagined. And it is within these settings, large and small, but particularly at the more personal and intimate end of the scale, that we find the natural setting of those characteristic signs of human life, laughter and tears. We find each other funny, we find each other tragic, we find ourselves and our relationships funny and tragic. This is who we are. We can't avoid being this way, and we don't want to, even though things often don't work out the way we want. But the reality for all of us is that we catch glimpses of joy in relationships, glimpses of fulfillment. There are times when you had a great evening with your friends and you feel like this, this is how it's supposed to be, and, and it fills you up. When you have a great date with your spouse and you feel like, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing okay. This is good. Our relationship is healthy. And we get those glimpses and they assure us of the glorious purpose for our relationships. But at the same time, sometimes on the same day, we all experience pain in relationships, which confirms our suspicion that we do have a serious problem. So we're caught between the glorious purpose and the instinct to invest in relationships and also the constant disappointment that they don't work the way we want them Two, why is that? Well, the purpose explains the problem. The purpose explains the problem. If the purpose is transformation, we must accept that at best we are being transformed, that there is a need for transformation. If the purpose is for us to get to our future glory selves, we have to acknowledge that we are not there yet. We're not quite glory selves ourselves yet. And so we're wrestling with the glory in our relationships, seeing the purpose, but also being puzzled by all the difficulties we see. Paul wants to supply what is lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians. He says, I need to come to you. I need to be face to face with you because I want to supply what's lacking. He says that because he knows that their faith is not perfect that something is lacking, that they need help, that they need to grow. Of course, we need to point out that many people do not have faith in Christ at all. And so they have not even begun the process of transformation. And many of our relationships are with people like that. So it's no surprise there's dysfunction. It's no surprise there's pain. If God hasn't even started the process of transformation into their future glory selves. And then as we think about believers, it's slightly better, I think, in the church, slightly. But even among Christians, relationships are very difficult because we have not been totally transformed yet. It's one thing to affirm the value of relationships. It is quite another to work through conflict and misunderstanding and selfishness that we all deal with. This is a difficult sermon for me to preach because I look at my relationships I have some good relationships. I have some dysfunctional relationships. And in some of those cases, I'm a major contributor to that dysfunction. I have some confusing relationships. I don't even know how to, how to navigate them. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't think my experience is unusual. I think we're all wrestling in this tension of seeing the glory 
of the relationships, what it could be, and getting glimpses of that, but also being in the, the very real experience of pain in those same relationships. Even in our text here, I mean, if you read what Paul is saying, he's, he's not the most secure person either. He's worried that they've forgotten him. He's worried that they're interpreting his absence as indifference. And so, so he's trying to assure them. He's trying to, he's sending Timothy to find out, do they still like me? Timothy says, yeah, they still like you. So remember you kindly. There, there's that insecurity. There's that, that tension there. I want to help them. I want to be a person who brings God's grace into their lives. But I also know I'm not perfect. Paul knows he's probably made mistakes there as well. Now, that's the problem with our relationships. Now, I'm going to put it together, and I want to move you to commit to the priority of relationships. Because we can get discouraged, and we can say, I don't, I don't need this kind of pain. I don't need to work through these very difficult circumstances. I'm just going to be by myself. I'll do what I need to do, but I'm not going to invest in community. I want us to see the full biblical picture Relationships are tremendously important, specifically for our sanctification, but at the same time, they're incredibly difficult. But we must pursue them because they're important and even though they are difficult. Until the Lord returns, we must embrace the laughter and the tears of our relationships. Now look at how intentional Paul is about developing his relationship with the Thessalonians. He's, he's unable to be there physically. He says, I wish I could be there face to face. That's the best. But Satan has prevented me from doing that, so I'll do the next best thing. We're going to sacrifice Timothy, which is a sacrifice. He's a valued work, co-worker of Paul's. He has to spend days on the road just to get to Thessalonica. Who knows what's going to happen there with all their persecutions? Then Paul writes letters to them. He's doing as much as he can in the fact of physical absence that he can't control. Paul intentionally and sacrificially invests in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. Now look with me at verse 18 of the second chapter. Paul says that again and again he wanted to come, but Satan hindered them. Satan is also referenced in verse 5 of the third chapter where Paul is concerned that the tempter might be effective in destroying the spiritual progress in the young church. Now, what's the implication here? The implication is that lack of community is satanic. It's demonic. That Satan doesn't want relationships to happen. Why? Because relationships are essential to our growth. So he's intervening. You know, Paul talks about afflictions here. He says, we, we told you you were going to suffer. Now, I want to write to you, I want to encourage you in your affliction, but you knew that. This is not going to be easy. And so navigating affliction, navigating demonic activity, navigating physical absence, Paul is still pursuing relationships with them because he knows lack of community is deadly. Isolation is incredibly dangerous because it gives the enemy more opportunities to tempt us away from being transformed into our future glory selves. 
Satan disrupts Christian relationships because our relationships are God's means of sanctification. This is how God works. And so it is no surprise that division in the church is one of the greatest issues, one of the greatest dangers, that we have to work at relationships, we have to work at unity, that it's not easy because the tempter wants to tempt us away from spiritual health. One of the biggest issues that we're encountering as a church in our community is we deal with a variety of issues and people come to us for help and we want to help. One of the issues we're seeing consistently is people who are isolated. They don't have a network of relationships. They come to the church and say, I need help right now. And we say, well, who do you have in your life? Nobody. They've been isolated. And so when we look at economic issues, and we need to consider them on their own terms, there are economic issues in our community, absolutely. There are systemic issues in our community, but we also have to look at the epidemic of loneliness in our community. And if you don't have relationships, how can you survive? How can you address a season of struggle when there's nobody there to help you? All sorts of problems stem from our isolation. The church is one of the few remaining institutions in our culture that is committed to developing relationships for the sake of those relationships. Lots of other organizations develop relationships for the sake of reaching a goal. You're working together. But this is different. We're saying that relationships matter apart from our preferences, apart from our political agenda, apart from our work schedules. We just think relationships are important as they are. And so we cultivate community, but we're in the minority. Most people in our culture don't see the value of that. We're going against the current, and we're saying, yes, it's important just to be with other people. It's important just to invest in relationships when you don't know if there's going to be any benefit for you or not. Well, you just love them, and they love you. And it's a long-term pursuit. Don't come and develop relationships just so you can get help. No, just come and be with us. That's our, that's our invitation to many in our community. We're saying, come and be with us. Come and know us. Let us know you. Become part of our family. Most people who come to Jesus begin their transformation journey in the context of a relationship with a Christian. We know that. Statistically, people convert to Christ because they know Christians, because they have seen the gospel played out in their lives. Those who are experiencing healthy spiritual growth are doing so in the Christian community. That's typical. People who are really growing, people who are healthy spiritually, are also people who are committed to a local assembly of their church. Those who are suffering and those who are able to get through a difficult season of suffering often do so without bitterness and resentment because they are being supported by loving and caring people. Relationships are simply indispensable. We, we can't say we're not going to do that. That's not optional for a Christian to say, I'm just going to take care of myself. You can't say that. God uses relationships for your growth. For you to get to where God wants you to get to, you need other people. And they need you. Let me address Christians in the room. Are you prioritizing relationships? Are you intentionally pursuing face-to-face -face community with other believers? Not online community, but face-to-face -face community with other believers, however difficult it may be, and it is difficult. Do you have a basic commitment 
to spend time with others with the goal of helping them grow and growing yourself? Are you committed to regular things like Sunday worship or small group or Bible study? Are you serving others in a specific ministry where it's regular and intentional and you're developing relationships with the same people over time? Not particular goals of getting anything out of it, but just being with them and working alongside them. Or have you isolated yourself? Have you isolated yourself and think you're okay? I just want to tell you, you're not okay. It is not okay to isolate yourself. It is harmful for you to do that. If nobody knows you in the church, and if you don't know anybody in the church, you are in grave danger. Because this is when the tempter works. Because there's nobody there to defend you. I heard a story from D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar. Pastor Josh and I love his commentaries, so we often reference him in sermons. He talked about growing up in Canada, in, in uh, French Canada, where there were not many evangelical churches at the time, and he said that every so often, maybe once a month, once every other month, a youth group would gather, but it would be youths from all these different churches, and they would, they would come sometimes for you know, tens, of, tens of miles away, and they would come for this kind of a big youth uh, retreat. And he went, and he was, a, he was in his youth group, and he would go to those meetings as a teenager. And he said one time he came home, and he was talking to his mom, and he said, you know, I, I just don't want to go. I go, and I, nobody reaches out to me. I just feel lonely. I feel isolated. I feel like nobody really cares about me. And his mom said, <laughs> she, she, she said, you know what you should do? You should go back. You should find the loneliest person in that group, and you should be their friend. And he said once he did that, he became one of the leaders in that, in that movement within a couple of months. What changed? Well, he embraced an other-centered life. He embraced a different way of looking at relationships. First, he was looking for what would benefit him only. But then he realized if he prioritized the benefit of other people, it would actually benefit him too. Now that's a story that is common in the church. Some of us have told that story about ourselves, of saying, yeah, I win, but nobody loves me. But what if we loved others? The chance of that love being returned is very, very high. And for us to prioritize others, to prioritize relationships, to commit to relationships, long-term, to invest in others so we can help them grow and they can help us grow is exactly what Christians are supposed to do. And finally, I'll finish by talking about the power for our relationships. Where do we get the power to overcome isolation and loneliness? It's not easy. Where do we get the power to overcome difficulties in relationships? Where do we get the power to live other-centered and fulfilling lives? Before I give you the answer, and I will, let me give you another illustration. I came, came across this interview this week. Uh, I don't know if you know who David Brooks is. He's a columnist for the New York Times, written some books. He's been on an interesting trajectory. Some of us are very interested to see where he's going to end up, but he certainly seems to be getting closer and closer to Christianity. But he, he described his own experience of loneliness and transformation. Now, I, I don't want to read too much into it. I don't know that he's a Christian, but he talks in the way that Christians would talk, so there are hints of grace here. 
But this is what he said. He said that several years ago, uh, he had a very difficult season of his life, a combination of his marriage falling apart, kids leaving the house, pressures at work, and probably other things. And this is how he describes it. And so I was living alone in an apartment, and I had valued time over people. I had valued productivity over relationship, and I had vast stretches of loneliness. If you went to my drawers where there should have been silverware in the kitchen, I had post-it notes. Where there should have been plates, I had stationery because I was just working. I was using workaholism as therapy for an emotional and spiritual problem. So I was down in the valley, and I went through that period, and I discovered that you can either be broken or you can be broken open. It's a very interesting phrase. You can either be broken by loneliness or you can be broken open. And some people get broken. They turn fearful in their bad moments and they lash out. They turn hostile and violent and tribal. And they're full of resentments. But some people get broken open. You just realize the depths of yourself. And you realize that only spiritual and emotional food is going to fill those depths. So you think, I got to change my worldview. Now, what has he discovered in that loneliness? He discovered that one of the keys to change is to get broken open, to come out of yourself, to recognize that you need spiritual and emotional input from outside. Now, see, in suffering and loneliness, some of, the, some of us, we regroup and, and we turn inward and we get broken and we give in to bitterness and resentment. But others of us, we get broken open and so we open ourselves up to others. And so we have a new source of energy that is now coming from the outside. And we get over ourselves, we get outside of ourselves and our life changes. Now, to recognize that you need that, to recognize there are two ways to respond to this is the beginning of true transformation. In fact, that's what some of us Christians call repentance. How can we get broken open? Have you been broken open? Look to verses 11 and 13. This is the answer. At the very end of the third chapter, Paul gives us a prayer. Now, this is Paul's prayer. So he's talking about relationships. He's talking about wanting to see them face to face, but then he ends on a prayer. And this is what it is. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Three quick things here that give us the answer of where we get the power for our relationships. One, Paul prays. He prays to God. He's asking God to work in his relationships. It's easy to overlook that he ends on a prayer, but it is crucial. We need God. When you think about your relationships that are dysfunctional and difficult, we need God in those relationships. You can't fix it on your own. We don't work like that with people. We don't just change and become nicer. We need God to change us. We need his involvement in our relationships. So is God involved in your marriage? Is God involved in your friendships? Is God involved in your parenting? Are you seeking his influence? Are you seeking his power to transform? 
He's the one who transforms people into their future glory selves because he alone has the right view of who we are now and what we are to become. And so we need his power. That's why we pray. Secondly, notice that Paul prays to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus. It's actually kind of unusual in Scripture to direct a prayer both to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus. Why is he doing that? I think he's pointing to the communal nature of God himself. God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, and yet one essence. Now, putting it together with Paul's request for the Lord to make them increase and abound in love, love for each other and love for all, do you see the connection? This flow of love that is necessary for those relationships to work, it doesn't begin with us. It did not begin with Paul coming into Thessalonica and says, I will love you so you can love other people. Paul has already had an experience of love. He knows the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in his own life. And where does that come from? It comes from God. You see, the Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit loves the Son. There's a communal experience of love within the Godhead eternally. And so we love because God is love, because God has loved from the very beginning, because God has loved from eternity. And so we need the power of God's love in our own relationships. We need to tap into this eternal, steadfast, perfectly mutual, other-centered love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We need God's love to transform our relationships. That's two. And three, notice that Paul is asking the Lord, meaning Jesus Christ, this is important, He's praying to the Lord, to the Lord Jesus, to infuse this divine love into our relationships. Because it is through Jesus, who he is and what he has done, that God's love flows into our lives. The early Christian theologians were fond of saying that God became like us so that we can become like him. God became human in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means he assumed transformation into who we are now so that we can be transformed into our future glory selves. Jesus was torn away from God so that we can be reconciled to him. Jesus left his glory so that he can share it with us. Jesus loved the community of the Trinity so that he can form another community of people who are being transformed by his love. Jesus experienced all the problems of human relationships in his unrelenting pursuit to present us blameless in holiness before God our Father. Jesus jumped into the human dysfunction and it destroyed him, it actually destroyed him. What is the cross if not an example of broken relationships. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was used as a political pawn by, by powerful people. He was, he was a sacrifice of someone's selfish ambition. But something else happened on the cross. Jesus was broken open. He gave himself to us in a sacrifice of love. And that sacrifice not only repaired our relationship with God, 
but also released the transformative power of God's love into our lives. The other-centered life does not begin with being centered on other people. It begins with being centered on Jesus, who died and rose for us to have a relationship with us and to transform us into our future glory selves. So I leave you with this. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Did you get broken open by the cross? To the degree that we experience God's love through Christ, can we have power in our relationships?